0: So tonight we begin a new series, which is, I think, always exciting. We're beginning a series in Judges. Um, and you know, when, when, uh, when pastors, when preachers pick uh, a series to preach on, um, there's, there's a reason behind it. There's a reason we pick the, the, the books that we do. Uh, And it it involves a lot of factors. Some of the factors are that the situation that the congregation is facing is something that the book speaks to. Sometimes it's a situation or culture as a whole is what the book speaks to. Um, Personally, what I've always liked to do is uh, if we're doing a New Testament series uh, one night or during one service, that then we do an Old Testament uh, book in the other service or another night. And Pastor Steve is going through Philippians, as you know, at 11 a.m. So this this evening, we're starting a series in the book of Judges. And I think Judges addresses many issues that we're facing today as a nation, as a people. Um, And also, the interesting thing is that uh, even though um, I'm sure... Most of you have read the book of Judges, and some of you have expressed that it's one of your favorite books. Judges really, in in the Christian churches as a whole, is very infrequently preached upon. It's it's not really a book that's covered much, and one of the reasons for that is there's a a difficulty with the modern expositors um, interpreting the... uh, the large amount of bloodshed that is in the book. How, how do you convey that in a New Testament perspective? And that can be a challenge. But, but what I like about challenges in the scripture is that, in my experience, if we deal with challenges, it serves to strengthen our faith and to strengthen our, our biblical worldview. We don't always want to take the easy route, when we're approaching the Bible. We want to struggle with the things that make us think, and judges certainly will do that. So I'm excited about this this series that we're going to be doing. It's going to take us a while to get through it. I intend on doing a verse-by-verse exposition of it, so we'll learn quite a bit. And tonight is just going to be an introduction. We're going to talk about what this book is all about, what's the background, what's going on, how do we understand it. So first off, let's talk about the time in history of Judges. So this takes place after the death of Joshua, sometimes after that. And the book is after the book of Joshua. We read about Joshua's death at the beginning of Judges. And so it's shortly after what we would consider... The conquest of the Promised Land. But as we see, the Promised Land has really not been conquered. The job has been left half done, so to speak. In the time of the judges that we'll be looking at, they'll be studying, is what leads up to the establishment of the Israelite monarchy, the Davidic throne. It prepares the way for that. And all of this is taking place approximately 12 centuries before the time of Christ. And who are these people that the Bible calls the judges? Well, in Hebrew, this word is shafatim. And the root from shafatim is shafat. And it means to rule, to administer, to exercise leadership. And there's two basic derivatives of this usage of the root. One is to judge, which, which would be leading in external affairs, and the other, excuse me, internal affairs, and the other would be to deliver, which would be to lead and deliver in external affairs, foreign affairs, so to speak. So these are not judicial officials, in our modern sense of the word. You know, as we know, the English term judge is used to describe an official who maintains justice within an established judicial system. That's not what we're talking about here. So the Hebrew term used in the context of this book describes an individual who maintains justice for the tribes of Israel. And what does justice mean in this ancient context? It means protection from foreign oppressors as much as it means protection from internal threats, crimes, things of that nature. In maintaining international justice is really the role of a king. So why are the just judges not kings? How are they different from monarchs? Well, there's no formal process in a judge assuming the office. In other words, this, this, uh, this role cannot be passed on to a son, or to one's heirs. It's not um, a, 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 something that can be assumed. And also, there is no supporting administration for a judge like a king would have. A judge does not have a standing army. A judge does not have the ability to tax the people, to underwrite expenses. So while the actual function of the judge may have much in common with the king, the judge did not enjoy many of the royal prerogatives that a king had. So in one sense, we could say that the judge's job was more difficult than a king's job. Yet, each judge, since he was individually and uniquely raised up by Yahweh, by the Lord God, he did not run the risk of assassination as a king would by an usurper or, or a rival to the throne. So the judges, we shouldn't think of them as, as heads of government in general, but they did have a unique authority, and that was to call out the armies of the tribes. They could call out uh, the army of, of each tribe to gather. Each tribe could or would be required to send men to this call if it was issued. This is one of the key identifiers of what a judge is. Prior to the monarchy, there was no one from any one tribe that was able to exercise such authority over other tribes. It would take a king to do this. So therefore, you know, when a judge was able to do it, when a judge was able to gather all the armies, Israel saw this as a sure sign that the Lord God was working through this judge because this was something that was so extraordinary to be able to call out the armies. Um, And when tribes refused to cooperate, as we will see, it leads to intertribal warfare among the Israelites, civil war. So it wasn't until the establishment of a kingship, a permanent kingship, that a, there was a permanent human central authority over Israel. These judges were not that. They really um, were more like tribal authority figures. They were like chieftains of tribes with a wide range of executive and legislative um, powers. This is an unusual role. And um, so where did, it, where did this come from? Where did these judges, did, where did they suddenly appear? Well, if you think back to the time of Exodus, and Moses has led the people of Israel out of bondage in, um, in Egypt, and they're out at Mount Sinai. And his father-in-law Jethro comes and visits them in the camp. And what does he find? He finds that Moses is involved from sunup to sundown hearing disputes among the people. He really doesn't have time to do much of anything else. And Jethro takes him aside and says, what you're doing is not good. You're going to wear yourself out. This burden is much too heavy. What you need to do is appoint chiefs over the people, chiefs over the thousands, chiefs over the hundreds, chiefs over the fifties, so on and so forth, and have them judge the lesser affairs And then you judge just the heavy affairs. And this is the establishment of the Shophatim, the judges. Not exactly the same thing, because we're going to see during the time of judges that they really don't perform this judicial aspect that Jethro suggested to Moses. The only time we see it is during the time of the Judge Barak, where the prophetess Deborah is working with him, and she actually does... Judge Israel. She's, she, cases are brought to her, and she hears the cases of the people, and she judges. But out of the whole book, that's really the only judicial role that we that we ever see. Now, as far as the book itself, the shape and content of Judges is is very interesting, and from a preacher's point of view, it's fantastic because actually it's it's built like a sermon. The the main body is very sermonic. In in its structure, so it it lends itself to preaching, which makes many commentators think that they, this was a, this was intended. This was the a purpo, This was a purposeful um, part of of how the book was uh, put together. So we have at the beginning we have two prologues. It's interesting, not just one prologue, but we have two of them. Then we have the long main body, which is the accounts of the judges themselves. And then we have two epilogues that wrap up the book. So two prologues and two epilogues, and they match up. They give us a um, a, a special structure. Because the first prologue that we come to deals with Israel's social fragmentation. The second prologue deals with Israel's religious deterioration. Now, notice both of these are negative things that are going on. So we can tell right off the bat that we're dealing with some um, major societal problems in Israel in this book. The epilogues deal with those same things, but they reverse the order. And this gives us if, um, what, what commentators, theologians would call uh, an ABBA or AB, prime, A prime if you're outlining it. Um, for a class, so that's, that's how this, this works so it's, it's, they, they dovetail in a very, uh, a very Jewish literary way which, which is, um, it's just always really cool when you find stuff like that, it's like man, this is just all so intentional this isn't just someone writing down an account it's like this is structured in a way that is, that is very intelligent and very purposeful And at the beginning of the book, the book of Judges, Israel asks a very important question. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, Israel asks, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Then we come to the end of the book. Remember how I said how it dovetail. A very similar question is asked at the end, but in very different circumstances that are very revealing as, as to what's been going on and what the issues are that are being struggled with. The question at the end of the book is, who shall go up first for us to fight against the people of Benjamin? That's, a, that's one of the tribes of Israel. We're talking about civil war here. We're no longer talking about fighting the external enemies. The enemy has now become internalized. And Yahweh answers them. the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. The Lord answers in the same manner in both cases. it's, It's Judah. So Israel's threat from an external enemy has been internalized as civil war. Then we come to the long body, like I said, of the, of the text, the long part of the story. And this is the reports of the judges. And the, the accounts proceed in a south-to-north direction by tribes. It starts with the southernmost tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and it works its way up. There are six major judges, and there are six minor judges. Basically, every tribe of Israel is represented by one of these judges, and we will deal with them in depth. We won't go over them right now. We'll be getting ahead of ourselves if we do. But the interesting thing about these six major judges is their accounts are presented in a cyclical pattern. It's the same sort of thing that is reported in the same manner. First, there's a report of apostasy amongst the Israelites, Then there's judgment from Yahweh. Then the people cry out to Yahweh. Yahweh then raises up a deliverer in answer to their cries. The people are delivered and the land has rest. Now, if you've been in the Wednesday night Genesis class, remember how important rest is. We've talked about Sabbath and what that means. It means safety and security. It doesn't mean kicking your feet up, although, of course, you're only going to kick your feet up if you have safety and security and stability, right? So that's what this rest is all about. The land has rest, and then there's the death of the deliverer. Then what happens? The whole thing starts over again. That's why it's cyclical. And Israel goes through this time and time again. The six minor judges, well, when we come to them, we'll see that there's their reports are very abbreviated, and there's not much in the way of a narrative development. We're told of them, but we're not really told about them. It's an interesting time in the ancient Near East when the judges arise. There's, there's some... There's some interesting things going on. And consider this. Think about God's hand being on history at this time. Like this morning when Pastor Steve was preaching on Philippians, he talked about the Roman Empire. And we've, we've discussed before from the pulpit or from the lectern in classes how important the Roman Empire was for the spread of the gospel. And how God established this mighty empire without which the gospel probably could not have spread like it did. Well, what's interesting here in the time of the Judges is God crushed all of the empires. The Egyptian empire was waning to the south. The Assyrian empire to the north was in its last days. It was ready to fall. The Hittite empire was gone. They had disappeared. There were no mighty empires threatening the land of Canaan at this time. So what happens? Now, the people who are inhabiting that land are turning their attention towards territorial disputes. Remember, Israel, as I had said, had not completed the conquest. Now is the time to take up the conquest again because there are no mighty empire armies coming in that are threatening um, the people in the land of Canaan. So, we have... Um, we have the Canaanites, which basically is uh, an umbrella term for the tribes and clans that inherit that land. You know, we don't think of them as like uh, a, a, a nation of people. They, they're just a, a term for the people that lived in the land, and they didn't all get along. You know, they, they, they were... Factional, they were, they were engaged in tribal warfare with one another. And then we have the Philistines, right? So these are the two arch enemies of Israel that we read about throughout the Old Testament, the Canaanites and the Philistines. Well, the Philistines are, are more unified. This, this term means sea people, and they settled along the coast. They probably came from uh, Greece or the Greek isles, settled five major cities, and they're the coastal inhabitants and the traders who... And uh, traders like they're engaging in trade; they're not like you know trying to topple a government. Um, but they become foes of of Israel um, also. So this this land of Canaan um, has typically been the game board, so to speak, for for war uh, in the ancient Near East, and, and this is kind of. Um, stop. So between, between the 12th and the 11th centuries, um, surrounding empires fought in this area. That was kind of the contested, uh, the, the contested land that these empires were fighting over. Now there's far greater freedom and maneuverability for the people that uh, reside there. In Israel, what's going on with Israel at the time of the Judges? Um, we really need to maybe reconsider our viewpoint of Israel, how we think of them in, a, in, you know, in our modern context. Um, too often, we envision the Israelites during this period as a cohesive unit, that they're, they're functioning as a, a nation, and they're, they're really not. Um, they, are, uh, uh, they, they don't have the refined organization that we would think of later under um, the monarchy. Uh, they don't have national leaders. Um, they don't have ready, readily available lines of communication. Um, it's true that during periods of their history with uh, their previous leaders like Moses and Joshua, th- these men provide a unifying glue, so to speak, for the earlier generations But there aren't any individuals like this anymore. There's none like that during the time of Judges. God does not raise up another leader for them like that at this time, and we'll we'll see as we go along. Rather, what God does raise up are localized leaders, and there's a somewhat disjointed collection of tribes that at a time align with one another against each other and, or against external enemies, they may come together. Um, they're, they're, apparently, they're held together by nothing more than a common understanding of their identity. They they know who they are. Um, they know that they have been delivered by Yahweh. That they share uh, a common God. That they sh- that they uh, are to be obedient to His law. Um, so that common history and their allegiance to Yahweh is what's holding them together. With with God as their supreme ruler or judge, and their law, His law really as their constitution, and it was this covenant relationship with God that which bound them together and gave them their identity as a distinct um, people. And so, really, it's just it's just God holding them together at this point. It's an act of God keeping Israel united. Um, there was, in fact, other than uh, we know of a, a religious ceremony that was held once a year um, in Shiloh. We know the, that the, the Ark of the Covenant was there, that this this brought the people together. Um, uh, but other than that, there was little effective unity. Uh, and some of the reasons for this is they were separated from each other by settlements of the unconquered Canaanites, these very warlike, dangerous, powerful enemies that inhabited the land. And some of the Canaanites were in fortified cities. these, These cities commanded the major trade routes and communication corridors. So the Israelites were separated from one another. They couldn't connect. They couldn't communicate with each other. And the gods of these Canaanites became a snare to the Israelites as Joshua had warned them as what would happen, and this led to a weakening of their loyalty to Yahweh and to one another, and resulted in spiritual and moral decline that was so serious that it actually threatened to destroy Israel from within. And so these tribes, because of this of, the, of this disunity that was going on, they were slow to help one another in a time of crisis, and even fell to fighting amongst themselves, most of the people were only concerned for their own interests and took advantage of the absence of a central government to do as they pleased, because there was no king in all of Israel. So every man did what was right in his eyes, which is a phrase we're going to see repeated in Judges. So this inner decay is going on, and it's threatening to destroy the very fabric of Israel. It actually constituted, some would say, a far more serious threat to Israel's survival in the judges' period than any external attack. So God, has, God is working to bring cohesion back to Israel and to spur Israel back to obedience to him. Something that I think is, is really interesting and a really um, very meaningful to me in understanding this book is how the book of Judges fits in to the Old Testament. Now, if we look at the layout of the Old Testament in our English Bibles, the book of Judges forms one part of what we call the historical books. So these are the books of Joshua through Esther. There's 12 of them. And so by implication, we call them the historical books, we're implying that they deal primarily with the retelling of history, which they do, of course. But more importantly, I would say, is how the Hebrew Bible views the book of Judges. It actually places Judges amongst a group of books that are known as the former prophets. The Hebrew scribes who organized Hebrew scriptures, therefore, did not see Judges like we do as just a retelling of history, but rather as a religious and indeed a prophetic interpretation of the past. Now, isn't that an interesting way to look at history? That puts history in an entirely different context, doesn't it? It's not just a matter of dates and names and places that you're reading about in in some dusty volume that really, how does that have anything to do with me? No, the Jews realize that God caused these things to happen. And the history of those things happening has prophetic implications to their present and their future. So my suggestion is that we should look at it the same way. That's the way history should be looked at. If we truly believe that God's decrees are sovereign, that he acts through human history and human time, then we're seeing prophecy played out. And prophecy is given to people as a warning and as an encouragement. So we can look at Israel's history in this way. I suggest we could also look at our history this way, although none of our history books are inspired scripture, none of our history records are, but God still is working in history in every other nation on earth, right? It's not just God works with the Israelites and everyone else is just kind of on their own. So... As we go through Judges, try to keep that in mind. And and undoubtedly, you'll see some remarkable correlations to events of our times, as I have, as I've gone through um, the book in preparation for the series. So eventually, there came a, a time in the life of ancient Israel for a serious and reflective examination of the past. We know of the things that have befallen Israel in its history. And here's this theory, that a, a particularly comprehensive examination apparently took place during the years immediately before and following the kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem's destruction in 586 by Babylon, the, the conquest and the exile. The closing period of reform and triumph under the last good king of Judah, which is King Josiah, and the utter decay that happened after his reign forced the the community of Israel to evaluate just what went wrong. And many scholars believe such assessments and reassessments of ancient stories and records eventually led to an overarching written presentation of Israel's experiences from the time of Joshua through the fall of Jerusalem. And it's presented in a, this six-volume work uh, of the, um, the former prophets, Joshua, Judges, First and 2 Samuel, First and Second Kings. The, these are the Navim, the prophets. There's also um, uh, uh, um, the there's latter prophets that are an additional 15 books that are, that are in there, but we're not dealing with that time period. So um, the idea is that this lays out a, a, a moving and impressive account of Israel's journey with Yahweh, how they've interacted uh, with God. And this overall work is referred to by scholars as the Deuteronomistic history. And the book of Judges covers the period, like I said, from the death of Joshua to the rise of the monarchy, about 1,200 to uh, 1020 uh, BC, this is the, um, the late Bronze Period and the early Iron Age, just about at the cusp of these two historical periods. So, Judges bridges an important gap um, in Israel's history. And what is the theology that we're going to find in, in Judges? Judges. So as the foundation of this theological interpretation of Israel's past, the writers of, the, of this Deuteronomistic history use the fundamental principles of what now we find in the book of Deuteronomy. As we, find, as we read in the book of 2 Kings, the book of the law supporting Josiah's reforms uh, that was found in the temple wall was likely an early form of the book of Deuteronomy. And the various stories, records, and traditions from the Israelites' earlier years was measured against the teachings of Deuteronomy. And these teachings can be consolidated into a comprehensive formula, which is obedience to God results in blessing, but disobedience results in disaster leading to the unmistakable conclusion that Israel's eventual downfall and Jerusalem's destruction resulted not from any weakness or unfaithfulness on God's part, but from the community, from Israel's own sinfulness. So throughout these, these books, the former prophets, the writers have attempted to demonstrate persuasively the validity of this conclusion. They have sought quite simply to show that disaster stems from disobedience and that brighter prospects lie in God alone. So as a result of this, and it's presented in a, in a sermonic, like I said, a sermonic and a prof- prophetic demonstration, it was hoped that subsequent generations might thankfully learn and live differently. One of the um, one of the better commentaries that I found on Judges is by uh, Barry Webb. And he, he says um, that Judges does not simply give us raw violence. Excuse me. I'm going to say Dr. Webb for a bit. So in specifically bridging the gap between the conquest and the monarchy, the book of Judges reiterates this basic formula and uses it to explain the dreadful term of events following the time of Joshua. And Israel's ever-increasing sinfulness repeatedly reduces otherwise promising situations into chaotic nightmares. We're going to see some things that, frankly, as we go through this book, are going to be difficult to understand and comprehend and to explain at times. Over and over again, the Israelites turn out to be their own worst enemy by abandoning God in favor of other deities, of the Canaanites, the people who are dwelling in the land. Furthermore, it's only by altering their ways and truly returning to God can the Israelites hope for genuine and lasting change in the days ahead. Judges clearly demonstrates that God must remain at the center for everything to hold together. Israel had a difficult time learning this. We should never feel that we have got this idea down and that, you know, how could they... How could they um, make this mistake over and over again? This is a constant issue with fallen humanity. So Judges has some very important themes in it. And these themes are all timeless. They apply to us just as much as they applied to Israel at the time of the Judges. Number one, leadership is vital, whether it's national Whether it's in the home, in the church, in your place of work, we cannot be without good leadership. And we're going to see how lack of leadership or poor leadership leads to disaster. We'll also see that partial obedience is disobedience. We cannot be partially faithful to God. If we are partially faithful, partially obedient, we are actually unfaithful and disobedient. God graciously calls his people, that includes us, to a covenant relationship. But God tolerates no rivals. God is graceful, gracious and merciful even to those people that sin. God is the one who ultimately saves, not Human leaders, as important as they are, they're not our saviors. The purpose of the book of Judges is also timeless. Judges is relentless in bloodletting. There are 69 specific individual violent deaths that are recorded in Judges. They include assassinations, murders, executions, human sacrifice, and suicide. There's a shocking amount of large-scale killing that goes on in Judges. 2,400, 200,042... I don't know why I'm having a hard time with this number. Over 200,000 people, i will say that, in numbered military casualties alone. Altogether, roughly a quarter of a million people perish in Judges. Now this is where Dr. Webb um, talks about violence. He says, judges does not simply give us raw violence, but interpreted violence. The challenge for those of us who read it as scripture is not whether we can identify with the violence, but whether we can identify with the theology that frames and interprets it. See, what he's saying is that there is a theology behind this violence that, that, that we must understand the theology to understand the violence. Otherwise, we're just reading a bloody historical account, which is not really profitable, right? It's not going to edify us. We have to understand this theology. So the assessment that we see of Israel um, here is abysmally negative. Israel is her own worst enemy, led by her leaders into a spiraling Catastrophe, each judge worse than the last. So, this is ultimately, like I said, a book on leadership or rather the lack thereof. And Judges is concerned with seeking an answer to a straightforward question. And that question is who is going to lead Israel? Like I, like I told you, we see this question asked at the beginning and at the end. And in the body of Judges, it begins with Atniel. The model judge, and ends with Samson. And Samson, the last judge, major judge that we have an account of, is so negatively evaluated that he dies against pagan formula uh, foreigners by his own efforts, and his own efforts to kill them. And his death leads to anarchy in Israel. And judges deals with politics what we call politics today, but really it's God's involvement in raising up leaders. God plays a direct role in the affairs of nations. We see this. He summons one foreign leader after another to deal with his disobedient people. And the same God actively participates within Israel's own political arena. He selects and ultimately empowers certain leaders, the judges, people whose political and military exploits will make them heroes among the population at large. And throughout Judges, God is not simply establishing an alternative community by totally separating his people from the rest of the world. No, he's, he, the God and his use of the Israelites is, works through the political and social structures of the day to bring about God's purposes. So that's all well and good from an Old Testament perspective, but what about the New Testament and, and Judges? It can be difficult, honestly, to reconcile events and judges in Judges involving the violent seizure of Canaanite lands, the killing or expulsion of its inhabitants, the destruction of their culture, and to, to reconcile that with the Christian principle of loving one's enemies and the prevailing modern view that all cultures are, are equal. So we, ha- we have to deal with this. We have to be able to explain this and understand it. However, I would argue that the New Testament does not give us the option of simply rejecting judges. The New Testament gives us very few clear references to the book of Judges. It gives us some notable allusions to Judges. Judges. And these are easily missed, I would say, because of the surface level contradictions. For example, there's an allusion with the Virgin Mary to Yael, the slayer of Sisera, commander of the Canaanite army. That's unexpected. There's an allusion between Jesus of Nazareth and Samson, which is also entirely unexpected. But most notably, in the New Testament, we have the book of Hebrews, Hebrews eleven thirty-two through 34, which names several of the judges as men of faith. And the author of Hebrews writes, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. These are four major judges of David and Samuel. Not in the book of Judges, but one of the, but the last judge of Israel. And the prophets, who through faith, Conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. As we go through these individual accounts of these major judges, we have to reconcile the fact that Scripture tells us that these are men of faith. And we're going to see some things that they do that frankly are hard to understand. That could be repulsive to us, and yet we have to understand how does how does God term them men of faith? Well, first and f- most obvious, um, when we look at this passage in Hebrews, the judges are not repudiated at all, but they're lauded. They're 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 um, along with such. Obvious, worthy figures like Noah, Abraham, and Moses. And they're named in Hebrews, which as a book is explicitly about the new and better covenant which has been inaugurated in Christ. So the New Testament doesn't give us an option of simply disowning the judges because of some of the difficulties we're going to encounter. The difficulties of them belonging to a barbaric age, you know, we just can't categorize them. Is that they're barbarians in which they made mistakes because they had the wrong ideas about God that we're not all, we don't have room for that uh, as an excuse. The letter to the Hebrews does not put us in the position of being able to judge the judges, so to speak. In fact, it is the opposite. It locates them among the great cloud of witnesses that Hebrews chapter twelve verse one talks about the cloud of witnesses by which our own performance as Christians can be evaluated. Secondly, the judges appear in Hebrews in a passage introduced by these theme statements in in chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where the author says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. The two verses that refer to judges specifically pick this up with the clause, quote, who through faith conquered kingdoms, end quote. In other words, these judges are not negative examples. They don't stand in contrast to the heroes of the faith, such as Abraham, Moses, and David. Rather, they serve as examples of the faith that Hebrews chapter 11 is all about. It's important that we keep that in mind. It would be inappropriate, therefore, in reading the story of the judges to simply point out their faults and leave it at that. If we do not find faith in the judges, then according to the letter of Hebrews, we're missing something, perhaps even missing what is most important. And third, the judges appear in Hebrews 11 in a summary of salvation History that runs from Abel through Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, and to Jesus Christ. In other words, the God whom we meet in the book of Judges is the same God who has acted in Christ for our salvation. What we see God doing in Judges must be understood as moving forward his saving purposes which will eventually find their fulfillment in Christ. So in the New Testament perspective, the judges not only have an illustrative function that is in reference to living the Christian life, but they also have a typological function that reference to the person and work of Christ. They serve both of these functions for us. But none of this means that the judges cannot be allowed to speak for itself, this book. We, we don't, we're not going to whitewash the judges. We're not going to turn them into paragons of virtue and models for, in all respects of Christian living and Christian behavior. That would be to overlook obviously flawed characters of the judges and the very real differences that we're going to find between life under the old covenant and life under the new covenant. So understanding judges as Christian scripture requires an understanding of both the continuities and discontinuities between the Old and the New Testaments. And this is what typology does by its very nature. The type is always less than the anti-type. Otherwise, the language is meaningless. As an example, according to Paul, Adam is a type of Christ, right? But the difference between them is just as significant as a similarity. Both are important. In view, therefore, of the way the New Testament refers to the judges, we may expect typology to play a significant part in our reading of it as Christian scripture, particularly in relation to Christology. But we may also expect Judges to contribute to what the whole Bible has to say about the life of faith. So these themes and theological messages that we're going to find in Judges are just applicable to us today as spiritual Israel as they were to ancient physical Israel. I know I've given you a lot of information tonight in in this introduction, but these are all the different areas that really we we need to try and be thinking about as we go through Judges to make it all fit. Um, and it, it, it's, it'll be interesting. I think it'll be challenging at times. Um, there's, some, there's some areas that um, you're undoubtedly going to be scratching your head over. Um, but just re- remember how Hebrews chapter 11 presents this book to us, that it is an example of faith, and that's what we're going to be looking at and focusing on. So with that, um, thank you for your attention. Let's close in prayer. Please join me. Heavenly Father, we give thanks again for this day. This is your day that we have enjoyed so much, Father. We give thanks for the brethren here Um, at Sovereign Grace that we are able to come together. Father, that we have the joy of meeting together for three different services on your day that we can hear your word preached three different times. Father, I pray that we profit from it, it, that it helps us get through our week. Father, that it helps us in our obedience to you that we may be better witnesses to the people we encounter in our daily walk of life. Father, may we dwell on this issue of faith and what it means to be faithful to you, that, that within that is, is the idea of obedience, that you desire obedience, you desire our steadfast loyalty. Father, we know we have that from you, and we give thanks for that. I ask for blessings on um, the brothers and sisters here tonight that are present and those that are watching on the live stream, Father. Guide them as they go through their week. Protect them, Father. Um, Be with them. We know you're with them at all times. Let them feel your presence, Father, during any times of difficulty. And we give thanks again in Jesus' name. Amen.